Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruski and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin and welcome to another spring, I guess we could say, uh, spring week here from Wisconsin. We have our full panel, which means Claire Zauke, our Healthcare Director here at Citizen Action is with us. Claire, great to have you. Thank you. Good to be here. Always good to have you. Always good to be here. And always good to have Robert Craig, Executive Director here at Citizen Action. Robert, good to have you. Good morning, everyone. We're recording Thursday morning, which is important to say because the they audience well, may know things we don't know when they listen to this. So it has been a very, very busy week. Um, we have We have a ton of topics, including the news that broke yesterday around uh, the Supreme Court, that would be the federal Supreme Court, reversing the Wisconsin redistricting maps that uh, we just got a few weeks ago. We're going to talk more about that. We, of course, have the Senate confirmation hearings of our what is soon to be the next Supreme Court Justice Brown Jackson. We're very fortunate. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about some news around the Progressive Caucus, what they're doing in Congress to get our agenda back on track, which is absolutely critical, both in terms of uh, just what we need, but also important in terms of uh, this critical election coming up this fall. A lot of news here in the state, too, both around um, the sham investigation, a new study out around uh, clean energy, and more news from Foxconn. And of course, Claire, we will also touch upon, hopefully, the Affordable Care Act turned 12 this week. And we have a lot of news around uh, a new bill that's being that was introduced and is still seeking supporters. Badger Care Public Option. We'll talk more about that. But Robert, I'm going to come to you because uh, I know there's a little bit of background on talking about what happened with the. Yeah, let's just say it. I think for most people, it was a shocking news on Wednesday to hear that the governor's maps, which are still gerrymandered were shot down by SCOTUS. Robert, I know there's background on this that's kind of critical to understanding uh, how we ended up with this decision yesterday. I want you to kick us off on this. We're going to try a slightly different approach. I'm going to say how, how we got here in terms of the legal arguments that set up the Supreme Court, what the Supreme Court right-wing majority just did, what the dissent was from Justice Sotomayor, and then where it leaves us. So, but I'm gonna leave space in between all of those for clarifying questions and thoughts from the rest of the panel. So starting, I mean, this is a very educated listenership, so I'm not gonna repeat everything that's gone on on maps and gerrymandering. But it's important to bear in mind that the state Supreme Court took jurisdiction over this, where that's not happened in previous uh, divisions over maps, partisan divisions between a governor and a legislature in Wisconsin but also said they didn't have the expertise to draw maps. So I think everyone knows that what they did is they invited the interested parties to submit their maps, but then they also created a brand new standard, didn't exist in any other state or federal court, which was the least change standard. And Governor Evers smartly and strategically offered less change maps that were better than the Republicans were going to do and better than the current maps because of shifts in population and partisan preference. And so, and those, and then the right-wing justices, three of them on the state Supreme Court reversed themselves on that standard, but Justice Hagedorn, the only principal conservative on the court did not. And since 
hence these maps were sustained. One thing that's been talked about, and it's gotten a lot of heat sometimes, is the question of minority representation. Uh, the Evers uh, lawyers, uh, what they presented state Supreme Court and the state Supreme Court, thought that there needed to, there likely or possibly need to be seven uh, African-American majority districts uh, to be compliant with the Voting Rights Act, but that is unclear, but they did seven. And so they went forward, uh, and, but they didn't give a detailed factual justification for that. So that's where we stood. Uh, Governor Evers seemed to have won in the sense that the maps are less bad, but they're, they're, they're still gerrymandered, as Matt pointed out. So anything from Claire or Matt before I say what then happened late yesterday with uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett and the majority of the U.S. Supreme Court? No, I think this is the most interesting and important and also confusing piece right now that you're about to describe. Okay. So the U.S. Supreme Court has a what is called a shadow docket. And its history is it was used when there was some clearly illegal act that needed to be blocked, like unlawful, unconstitutional, because the Supreme Court takes a long time to brief have oral arguments and decide cases about a year. That's why they have a year cycle. It has been abused recently, according to most legal analysts outside of the U.S. Supreme Court, to actually weigh in on things that w without briefs and without oral argument and to change law. That's what happened with upholding the Texas abortion ban, uh, for example, most famously, but there are others. So with the shadow docket, no briefs, no oral arguments, the, the now Trump right-wing majority of the U.S. Supreme Court, a decision written by Amy Coney Barrett, the most recent Trump appointee, um, remanded it, blocked the maps, and remanded them back to the state Supreme Court on the grounds that it may be racial discrimination because there may have been a race-based reason to have seven African-American majority maps. The time that is okay is, of course, when it's required by the Voting Rights Act. And they claim the standards of the Voting Rights Act were not met. Uh, and I'll get to whether that's even a fair argument. And so they have not said the maps cannot be sustained. They have not said they would not be sustained. They've remanded it back and indicated the state Supreme Court, which probably means the parties to the lawsuit need to rebrief and make the case as to what meets the rather complicated standards from different court cases that are not entirely on point as to what the voting, what the voting rights act requires as far as how much uh, minority representation and exactly w whether seven or not are required. I will point out that African-Americans are 6.7% of the population and with a 99 person assembly, seven is just a little over, just slightly, uh, uh, less than a percentage point over African-American representation, and six is a lot lower. So just on proportionality, they make a certain amount of sense. So that so it goes back to the state Supreme Court. It's not, they're, not, they're, not, they're not reversed. They're blocked and remanded back. So let me pause with that and then get to the dissent and where we go from here. Robert, I think one of the most confusing things for people, um, and, and I will count myself amongst and uh, this group who don't follow redistricting or um, 
like really understand the laws around what districts should look like. I think like one of the most confusing things is that there's this argument that districts need to be drawn um, in a way that isn't gerrymandered and gerrymandering means that like they can't be drawn to consider race except for the Voting Rights Act, which says you must consider race when drawing districts in certain areas. And that, is, and that is just, I think, so confusing for the public. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit to us about that and how you, and how you understand those two principles can, uh, can live together or not, I guess. Yeah, and maybe what I'll do is, because I think the Sotomayor dissent speaks to that in some degree, so I'll just uh, lay that out in, in response to what Claire said. And that is, the Voting Rights Act, it is confusion. It's been a moving target because the U.S. Supreme Court's been moving and making it less helpful in what its original intent is, as we know, all listeners to this podcast know. And so the question is, I know it's confusing to the public, um, the Voting Rights Act, you can violate the Voting Rights Act by not having enough racial representation. You can violate uh, other court precedents about simply doing things based on race only by, do it, by being accused of doing it by race only. So let me, I know we have a little time left, lay out Sotomayor's very strong dissent, and then, then we'll probably have to take a break, and then we can continue the discussion. And that is... Uh, First, she says the standards they're talking about that Coney Barrett is talking about, about the Voting Rights Act, are fuzzy at best. And so, therefore, the idea that there was some clear standard for the state Supreme Court and Governor Evers and the other parties to follow is not the case. She says, secondly, that even if standards like this were to be applied, it would be when someone um, act when there was actually a case concerning that, concerning uh, you know, a violation of the rights of the rest of the state because of, a, of, of, of drawing a map inappropriately based on race, according to state uh, to Supreme Court precedents, and that that's not there and that this is novel and unique theory on their part. So she is vehement that, that and obviously she's very vehement about this. And I think it is worth noting that we have a right wing U.S. Supreme Court that tends to side just with the Republican position. This was a uh, a, 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 a suit brought by the Wisconsin uh, uh, Alliance for Law, you know, Institute for Law and Liberty, the right wing group that supports Republican positions. And they side with it just like the state Supreme Court, three other than Hagedorn conservatives tend to just be wherever. And she also points out critically that it's unclear why the least change standard wouldn't, be, wouldn't, wouldn't trump all of this, because if that is the basis for the map, then it was not a racial motivation, even if the Voting Rights Act does not require this, which is not a, a, a fact and evidence. So it's a very vehement defense. I know we have to go to break, but uh, we can get afterwards to any clarifying dis 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 discussion of that. And the most important, what podcast listeners have been waiting for, where we go from here. So Matt, I know we're well, near the yeah. break. Look, I think uh, most of our listeners uh... This is a very clarifying decision and just how political this court is. Folks, you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin or Citizen Action. Welcome back. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're talking about what can only be described as a largely incomprehensible decision by the Supreme Court. 
I think in the first segment, Robert did an excellent job of trying to lay out some sort of rationale, but look, um, it's interesting. And uh, Robert and Claire, I want to get your response to this. I thought Governor Evers' response yesterday was interesting in how it was different than, shall you say, every other Democrat, including Call, like being upset and just being very sort of publicly positive at the fact that they were going to win this, that they were going to go back and that they think they're still going to win this because of quite frankly, Robert, what, what you all just sort of laid out at the end there. Right. And what uh, certainly the dissent was that um, these maps did meet their top thing, which was least change. And, you know, the idea that somehow there's a violation of the voting rights act here, that's clear is a stretch at best. Uh, Clara, Robert, uh, Robert. I think yeah. And they, to, and they yeah. don't even say that they just say that they haven't done this that the, 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 they haven't provided the evidence that would justify the maps so i think by the way i know claire wants to get in here but i i think evers is right and the louder voices are wrong but i've not heard the, the, a briefing from the law forward lawyers who are working on the democrat and progressive side so this is me someone who studied a lot of legal discourse but is not a lawyer reading this I think that Evers, on face, based on the legal arguments, which are really political, Matt, you're right, but the legal arguments matter in that, that you have to figure out how to navigate this legally. It's in a, it's in a, a quasi-legal political context of our current courts. Uh, they, they simply say that if the state Supreme Court or the governor, if the governor is the one who's doing the research, because they say either one is fine, they're not sure who is presenting the standard, go and demonstrate and show that the precedent standards that are, are, are met for having seven districts, then they'll approve them. So they're, they're not dead, and there's still a pathway uh, to going and, and doing this quickly and uh, presenting something that, that meets the standard of this, of this uh, right-wing majority. Now, whether they, like our state Supreme Court right-wing three, simply change their standards when that comes forward, that's another question, because we had the three state Supreme Court justices in Wisconsin uh, put forward the least change standard and then not vote for the least change maps, right? Proving no legal consistency whatsoever. But Claire and Matt, I think that I think Evers is right if you have just based on the plain reading of the majority decision by by Justice Barrett. I think if you're ready for it, it would be interesting for us to pivot to this conversation about where do we go from here? Because I think there's actually two tracks that we could follow here. And one is where do we go from here with the legal case? And what, and then one of them is where do we go from here as far as like implementing elections and districts? Because um, this certainly through uh, all of the state's candidates and potential candidates and legislators into chaos this week, because you know, you can't can't exactly run for office. The legal constraint. You can't run for office if you don't know what your district is. Yeah, the majority said, "Oh, there's plenty of time with no evidence either," which is the right. shadow docket problem. Though they didn't listen to any arguments or briefs about why it's too late or what disruption would exist, which they should have. But I would just say this: it goes back to the state supreme court. It's up to their majority's process. They could set a short deadline for the parties to rebrief on the questions raised by the state Supreme Court and immediately send something back, or they could be more dilatory. 
And so, and I don't know if our organizing could influence that, but there, there are a lot of other people in the Fair Maps Coalition thinking about that. But my quick answer is we got to see what the state Supreme Court does with this attack in their lap as of a little after five central time yesterday. That is Wednesday. This is a confusing and unsettled time, Robert. <laughs> and you're right about the state, the U.S. Supreme Court, state Supreme Court, not giving a damn about the public understanding their government and making political decisions. And this is in stark contrast uh, to uh, Judge and Future Justice uh, Brown Jackson, who, who who every time they try to get into policy said, "I don't make the policy decisions. I interpret the Constitution." And, uh, and, and the law based on specific cases brought before a court. Well, mm, excellent well, point. Matt, go ahead. Sorry. Excellent <laughs> point. And I think excellent transition time to it does look a decision like this only puts into further perspective just how critically important these Supreme Court nominees are and how historic this week has been with um, Katanji Brown's nomination. Uh, Brown Jackson, excuse me, nomination uh, in the hearings this week. And I really would like to hear a little bit from both of you on any reactions you have. I mean, I think, look, we understand that uh, she is likely to be uh, confirmed because of just sort of the way the votes go. But I got to say, I've spent some time listening to these hearings and I'm even like I just uh, shocked at uh, some of the behavior of the Republicans, um, but um, just super impressed with <laughs> with, with uh, who will be the next justice. Uh, but uh, Clara, Robert, I'd uh, love to hear any thoughts you have of the nomination uh, hearings in the Senate. Yeah, I can start. I'll say that um, I agree. It's been, um, it's, it's been kind of funny almost to watch some of these Republican senators try to tear apart the reputation of this incredibly reputable woman. And uh, all, all the analysis that I've heard and what I've been thinking is that this is just an exceptionally qualified person to, to sit on the United States Supreme Court, uh, regardless of um, the sort of historic nature of her appointment. And that, uh, you know, if Republicans are going to want to vote against her, which, you know, clearly they're going to want to vote against the nominee of a Democratic president, that they're going to need to to try to come up with a good excuse because it's it's hard, I imagine, politically hard to vote against the first uh, black woman nominated for the United States Supreme Court. And so and so they got to find they got to find what could seem like a defensible reason for objecting to her nomination. And so the things that they've pulled out are clearly the best attempts at smearing her reputation, things like uh, having represented um, detainees uh, in Guantanamo and then trying to twist some of her words used in their defense to to be provocative. Um, I, uh, I don't think, obviously, that that's going to be enough to sink her nomination. It seems pretty clear that that it'll move forward, uh, given the you know, 50 Democratic votes plus uh, Vice President Harris. And I wouldn't be surprised if they pulled at least one Republican. Um, you know, she all the coverage has said that when she was uh, approved for her federal judge seat, that there were a few Republicans who voted for her. I don't think she's going to get Lindsey Graham this time um, based on their questioning. 
but you know, maybe, maybe she gets uh, one other. I I will concur on your decision on Lindsey Graham. He was a just boorish behavior. Some of the worst behavior. It was like, I was listening to that and I was thinking, geez, you know, it's hard to sift through his horrendous behavior to even concentrate on what his actual question is. Uh, anyways, Robert, your thoughts. I'll go with we're doing like betting, like the NCAA tournament. Uh, since uh, Claire goes with one, I'm going to go with three Republican votes. But uh, we'll see. Claire may well win this one. I don't know what we're betting, but Claire can decide later. Uh, just uh, bragging rights, maybe. But I would just say that uh, there's a distinction between the Republicans who actually acted like senators, like uh, ranking member Grassley, uh, Chuck Grassley, who is a right wing conservative, but was asked reasonable argument uh, questions and got a whole lot on the record versus three in particular, Senators Cruz, Hawley and um, uh, the horrendous, as Matt uh, mentioned, Lindsey Graham from South Carolina. And the way to understand what they did is it's political. It has nothing to do with the law or what a, a U.S. Supreme Court justice does. You can also argue, I think, very effectively that it's it's dog whistle racism as well, a cause accusing the black person of being soft on crime. But it goes even deeper than that. And it reminds me of like state Supreme Court races or attorney general races in Wisconsin, where each side, you know, the, the, the bet Matt and I have all the time is, how will each side decide the other one helped child molesters, right? Or child pornographers or something like that. And so, but they're all over. This is something that a U.S. Supreme Court justice doesn't even do because it's an appellate court, not a trial court, um, is that uh, they dickered on the sentences she had given to some people who were committed of uh, convicted of looking at child porn. Okay, they weren't the pornographers themselves. They were lo- they they collected pictures of child porn, which is gross and creates a market for it, and is a federal crime. And what you need to understand is once you bring that up, no one can look good because there's almost no answer that is sufficient, and it ties into this is important in conservative discourse. They tend to make arguments that, uh, that, that hit the emotion of disgust. And once they've hit that with their base and a lot of independent voters, even some Democrats, it doesn't matter how reasonable and uh, her response is. And the problem is you can't work in a constitutional framework where everyone has a right to counsel and a fair trial and also just operate on a lynch mob mentality of, uh, you should you you put you could have put her away this person away for 90 months and you put them away for 50 months and therefore you're soft on child porno- pornography. We that is so it was it was heinous. We have to take a break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin with Citizen Action. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We just had a good conversation of the Senate hearings. Um Robert, it's amazing. Like, I just I couldn't get past the behavior, right, in the tone and the way the discourse was going to even. It's tough to sift through and get to the core because it wasn't there, and it demonstrates not only people. The mass media is talking mostly about 
you know, who's running for president and how they were using it. And yeah, speaking to the base. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. It tells me also the modern we're in the modern age around uh, media that is really uh, bifurcated into multiple directions. And they were hitting on some QAnon stuff there that people didn't know. And I don't think the the media talked enough about this and it shows just what they were doing. They were, they were not, worried about what was going to play on ABC news, like you would have been in years ago or on the nightly news, they were, what's going to go on to the podcast, the stuff that's going directly to a very precise base, right. That they're shooting for both in their presidential aspirations, but also just in revving up this new QAnon base that Trump has, has demonstrated that was on full display with the behavior. Lindsey Graham. I mean, Lindsey Graham voted for her. And suddenly now Lindsey Graham's behaving like a 12 year old. Like I would have yelled at one of my kids for the kind of behavior, the bullying, the cutting off that went on. And I'm sorry. Yeah, that, that was kind a of stuff. That kind of stuff would have been that stuff would have been gone over like garbage on nightly news. It only goes mm-hmm. over on these very narrow bands of sources of people who get fired up on this stuff. And that's who they were playing to. And it demonstrates sort of this new world of uh, that politics is swimming in and that we're a part of, we're a podcast. Couple things on that, Matt. You're right about QAnon. And remember, QAnon is premised on a, that the Democratic Party is a child pornography ring. So there's all, but then there's other elements of QAnon. The other thing is just, if, if you had a doubt, uh, Senator Cruz, was seen by cameras because you got angles not paying attention to the the next testimony and the next cross-examination looking at his phone and checking searching his name on twitter to see how many twitter mentions he got and what he just did so that's where that is the medium he cares about not the not the nightly news with that we're going to switch topics claire i'm coming right at you because we are going to talk about the progressive caucus all right, we're going to we're going to stay at the federal level here. We've spent a lot of time talking about build back better. We've spent a lot of time talking about some of the huge things that uh, were a part of that and why it was so important. And of course, it's, shall we say, a spectacular demise uh, and the Progressive Caucus, which is a number it's it's growing every year, every every cycle of uh, progressive uh, Congress members who have been, first of all, leading the charge on Build Back Better, but now leading the charge and trying to figure out what's next. How do we stay on this agenda? What can we do that can work around uh, a couple of uh, the, the now famous uh, senators who don't seem to want to do anything? Claire, there's a lot of news this week about uh, what that is. And uh, could you enlighten our listeners as to what the Progressive Caucus is proposing and why it's so important? Absolutely. So I'll correct you on one thing. So Build Back Better is a little bit of a demise. Sure. I wouldn't call it spectacular because I don't think it's dead. And and I know I'm a little bit of an eternal optimist, but budget reconciliation, which is the vehicle through which Build Back Better was going to pass, budget reconciliation is still ongoing. And moreover, a number of our key priorities aren't dead and have support. So um, a number of prescription drug reforms, uh, closing the federal Medicaid 
gap through a, a sort of temporary coverage gap, like that's still very much in play. So um, extending the ACA subsidies that were passed through American Rescue Plans so that people don't have to pay more than eight and a half percent of their income towards their premiums. Like some, so these things are still in play. They still have support from people like Mansion and Cinema. It's just a matter of figuring out like what are the things that are going to be in whatever the next iteration of budget reconciliation are. That said, you're not wrong, and congressional uh, progressives have recognized that this broader package they wanted, this like multi-trillion dollar package, is unlikely to pass right now, and so they are encouraging the president to take action on as many of our policy priorities um, as possible that he can do through executive action alone. And it turns out that there are actually a significant number of things that President Biden could do right now, as laid out by the Congressional Progressive Caucus leaders in a memo that outline dozens, dozens of policy areas um, where the president could, could act. Or I shouldn't say policy area, dozens of things that he could do under a handful of policy uh, buckets. So these include things like um, lowering healthcare costs, um, lowering prescription drug costs through things like um, ramping up public manufacturing, allowing personal importation of drugs, um, using some existing legal authorities that they have around their like public uh, dollars that were invested in the development of drugs to lower drug prices. Um, using their power to make uh, marketplace plans for healthcare coverage cheaper, um, things around the global pandemic, like that we've talked about a lot um, on this podcast around um, public manufacturing and of, of um, COVID uh, vaccines and drugs and um, intellectual uh, property so that other countries can manufacture COVID vaccines for their population. Yeah, they can suspend patents, Claire. That's yep. really important. They can do it for domestic reasons too, like price gouging without any legislation. Yes, thank you. That's a really important clarifying point. Thank you. Um, one of the, probably the biggest executive action that the president could take that's gotten the most, um, I shouldn't say it's the biggest action, it's the thing that's gotten the most public dis discourse up until this point, of course, is canceling a certain amount of federal student loan debt. Um, but there are other things too, right? Like expanding some worker power and raising wages. There's a there's a number of bullet points that they that the Congressional Progressive Caucus laid out around that. Um, protecting immigrants, things like making temporary protected status for people who are um, in this country having fled crisis zones um, in the world. Um, things like. Um, uh, removing non-priority cases in the immigration backlog so that people can get more immediate relief and we can also shorten the um, the, the backlog of people waiting for immigration determinations. Um, there's a number of things around police reform and community safety and of course Robert's favorite topic climate crisis, right? So um, things about using, for example, the government's vast purchasing power to accelerate homegrown clean energy technologies. Um, so this is really a, a comprehensive multi-issue platform of things that the president can do right now without congressional action. And I, I think it's not getting enough, enough attention. Um, well, I, I think we should be talking about this. I agree with you, Claire, because there's a number of things that you mentioned. Well, one that Biden promised to do when he ran and delivering on promises is a really important thing. You mentioned the, the student loan debt. 
that's a no, that seems to me to be a no brainer, especially given the kind of election cycle we're headed into. Right. Like that's something he promised. So this is a great list. We'll have a link on our uh, website page uh, to, to the podcast that has some information and links to where you can find more information on more of what's being talked about. Robert. Yeah. And something I want to call out about this. Uh, and the challenge is. This is all big, but it can be complicated, and it's not the whole hog. And really, the power that to, to, the only way to balance corporate power and money power is, you know, organize people. And I don't think that the progressive movement has shown much capacity to mobilize, even around some big things that were in Build Back Better, let alone around things that need to be that are complicated. We're, we're really going to have to test our muscle to explain why this is important and to motivate people to act or we won't get a lot of these things. And I'll give you one quick example. There's one element of this uh, set of proposals in the Russia Progressive Caucus that the president has already acted on. I uh, didn't get enough attention, but the Securities and Exchange Commission this week uh, promulgated a rule, so it's both executive orders and agency rulemaking that's an executive power, that is gonna require all public traded companies to release to the public on a yearly basis their climate impact, their greenhouse gas impact, what kind of, and including their whole supply chain. So Walmart, you would have to look at all the manufacturers for Walmart, just for example, and, or, or, or big auto companies, for example, Every, everyone who has a huge you know, supply chain and requiring them to say what they're doing to try to use more renewable energy to meet the global climate standards. That's huge. People don't usually realize and progressive activists and organizers understand this, that information is power. And this is taking away what amounts to their industrial property. They're withholding it from us now because they don't want to be accountable. Now, once it's released, we can organize around it. They can be embarrassed by media coverage, et cetera, and it affects their reputations, all the PR money they spend, et cetera. It is the way, it's why the smoking industry or the gun industry try to suppress the information first. The information is the predicate for further action. And so the question is, and we've been discussing this at our national network, People's Action, we're a little confounded about how we explain how an SEC rule is critical to the future of the planet, which I think it is, and a critical step that can be taken. And we have a 60-day comment period where the whole business establishment and the Republican political establishment uh, are, are, are gearing up to undermine it and prevent it from happening. And furthermore, where Republican attorney generals are going to sue and try to get this U.S. Supreme Court to override it and make it illegal. So there's going to be a full court press by the other side, organized money and special interests. Question is, can we ramp up on something that is maybe the biggest thing we can do on climate, period. But the Congressional Progressive Caucus, it's playing a critical role now. We haven't been this way in 50 years with this much organized progressive power in Congress. And they already have a win. We have something huge if we can mobilize to keep it and, and defend the SEC and the Biden administration. We'll continue to track this and talk more about it. And, of course, organize action around this. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. What a busy week, both here in the state, 
history being made in those Senate hearings. It is hard not to be moved uh, at times listening to him. Well, when you're not being questioned by Lindsey Graham, but also big news here in Wisconsin. We have been, um, we've already talked about the SCOTUS uh, verdict around our redistricting, but the other big news this week is the shamocracy that goes on here in Wisconsin and connected to that is the sham election review <laughs> that Speaker Voss has been carrying on. And uh, he hinted this week on Tuesday that he is going to abandon potentially the subpoenas that were issued last fall to local electeds who were rightfully calling into question and refusing to do secret private meetings with Gableman uh, and other things. And this may hint at, and I wanted to give each of you an opportunity a potential winding down. I don't want to say that for sure, but that Voss may be trying to unwind this 2020 sham election review in a way that doesn't um, mean the end of his political career. Claire, uh, does this, this sounds like a big step for Voss. If he were to do this, his buddy, uh, uh, president, former president Trump might take him on a plane and reprimand him again, Claire. Uh, um, yeah, I recognize that it's a big step. I also think that we've seen the writing on the wall for this decision or potential decisions since he hasn't made it yet, uh, coming for a while, um, including the fact that he said repeatedly, both in public comments to the media, as well as private meetings by all reports, um, among colleagues that he thinks that there is no redress here, basically, um, that, that the election can't be overturned. Um, that that there's just like no really no reason to continue um, this sham investigation. So um, uh, if I had to guess, I would say he was maybe hoping that they would kind of like submit a report and then say, okay, we're done. And then he wouldn't have to make this step. Um, that's obviously not the case because Gableman is a pretty good thing going here as far as lining his, his own pockets and that of his team. So he's not going to quit until we tell him to is my guess. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I don't find this particularly surprising. You know, and Robert, I'll get your thoughts. Uh, it's interesting, Claire, you know, it seems to me like maybe after the last couple of weeks, both the Gableman uh, presentation where he suggests that they should consider overturning the election and then his famous one hour meeting with the T with the QAnon party, in his office, he's sort of probably been like, all right, maybe he came to the conclusion it's played out, right? Like, and he told them and came out and said, there's nothing here because uh, he's just been playing these people. And that's the divide again, back to you, Robert, but the divide within the assembly caucus, this new QAnon caucus of leaders who aren't going to accept what Voss is doing. Can your thoughts, Robert, can he get away with this or is this is this the beginning of the end for Robin Voss, maybe? Could go either way. Let me explain. For those of you old enough during the Cold War, that we had a discipline in the government called Kremlinology because there were tea leaves that could be read in public statements or in Pravda, the official newspaper, that seemed to read one way but hinted at something else, like some statement about uh, the, 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 the evil capitalist imperialists of the West actually could be read as they're willing to compromise on some issue because of, you know, what was it with the other content. 
And so I think you have to read modern Republicans that way as well, because it's an authoritarian movement as well. And so they're really, it's a little more complicated, but there are at least three big classes of Republicans right now. Uh, there are the never Trumpers and they're not in government anymore. They can't win elections. There are the Trumpers and there are a lot of them in the Wisconsin state legislature. They're true believers in all of this or think this is the way, their path to political power and influence or a little bit of both. Then there are people like Robin Voss who are out power hungry conservative people who are against most progressive values, but who actually do not buy the whole Trump thing, but they know they can't say that. So they try to play a little tennis here where they're with the Trumpers where they need to be. Then they try to cut the other way. And he's smart enough to know that you really can't overturn the election. So the reason he even did this sham investigation, and I'm sorry, I'm willing to debate the Wisconsin Super Law and Liberty on the idea this is any kind of credible investigation. It's absurd. Uh, and it's been, a it's been a sort of clown show. I mean, it really has. Um, it happened because uh, Robin Voss was attacked by Donald Trump, and he therefore it was the leader of the party, and therefore his position and power and career were threatened. And then he created this investigation and gave in to Representative Brandigan and the other hotheads in his caucus. She's the chair of their, the Assembly Elections Committee from Menominee Falls. So now, since it's been a disaster, and of course he knows there's no there there, but he can't admit it. I take this as a trial balloon, Claire and Matt. He wants to see if the orange menace in Mar-a-Lago will uh, shoot him down again, in which case he'll pivot again, or whether we can get away with this. And of course, I'm sure Brandigan and her allies and others are trying to get the, uh, the orange menace to go and, and put out a statement that, that slams Robin Voss again and makes him continue this investigation. And he had very good timing. You see, in fact, I think he might have shown this timing. You know, sometimes better be lucky than good, but I think he probably knew this. Uh, a Senate candidate, Congressman Wel Mel Brooks from Alabama, who spoke at the famous rally that led that, that where they marched from there to the Capitol to have the insurrection on January 6th. Um, he's been the Trump uh, supported candidate for U.S. Senate in Alabama, but he's been floundering in the polls as a distant third. And Trump pulled his endorsement of Brooks because Trump doesn't like to lose, as we all know, because he has the emotional makeup of a five-year-old playing a board game with you. And so what happened is Mel Brooks then went and spilled the beans and did interviews with NBC and other news outlets saying that Trump has been asking him to overturn the election and did so as recently as this fall. And he thinks the election can just be annulled and him be made president. So that is what, so Mel Brooks has now gone anti-Trump in retaliation for Trump destroying his political career, because I'm sure he didn't even file for re-election in his congressional seat. So that's why the, 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 uh, the, the head of the Republican Party has not shot down Voss yet. He's distracted. Question is, will anyone get to him and will he shoot Voss down and will Voss get away with shutting down the ridiculous Gableman investigation? My answer is stay tuned. What are, what are your bets? Claire and Matt. Yeah, I think that things are about to get interesting. I agree with you. Well, look, I think he's got no choice but to eventually shut the thing down. And it's just a question of whether he has the ability to withstand 
the pressure that will occur within his caucus. So we'll find out. But before we go, before we have to go this week, Claire, it's the uh, 12th birthday uh, this week of a fairly important monumentous uh, occasion that uh, this week we found out even another reason why it's so important. But uh, Claire, what turned 12 this week? (laughs) The Affordable Care Act turned 12 years old this week. Happiness. Well, and and look, you know what we always talk about how important the ACA is. We of course are quick to point out how it was. We need much more, and we should not be twelve years down the road and not have made a number of significant improvements. But this week there was um, news of uh, one Wisconsin insurer that was uh, removed now from the exchange uh, because it was not meeting the basic standards. And it yet again reminds us of why this law is so important for providing some baselines about, you know, how much has to go into care, some basic standards of what a, a decent plan would cover. Um, and so it was actually very fitting to uh, hear that oh, almost a thousand Wisconsinites were actually covered on this uh, by this insurer who now no longer uh, can uh, provide coverage through the ACA. Yeah, and I, I think this is a, also an opportune time to remind folks that we have two U.S. senators here, one of whom uh, voted for the Affordable Care Act and has continued to fight for full um, implementation of the ACA through closing the Badger Care expansion gap here in Wisconsin and uh, and trying to close the federal uh, Medicaid gap uh, at, at her level. So, th- of course, that would be Senator Baldwin. And then we have another senator who just this uh, month said that uh, if he thinks Republicans regain control, that they should try to repeal the ACA again. And that, of course, is our good friend Rojo. So uh, thankfully, the the not great one is up for re-election this year. <laughs> so. Yeah, look, it's good to point out, right? Rojo did uh, rebring this up and reiterate, right? This is on going to be an election issue again because he is all for getting rid of the Affordable Care Act. So uh, not only do folks, do we need to continue to push uh, towards Medicare for all, push to improve. Uh, and it is worth pointing out that Senator Baldwin's been a strong supporter of that also. Uh, it is absolutely critical this election this fall. I want to remind people uh, election season is on us right now. Spring elections, April 5th. You need to vote by April 5th. Early voting has started in just about every municipality. Uh, so that you can uh, go vote early if you won't be around on Tuesday, April 5th. But please get out and vote, folks. we got to wrap up this Battleground Wisconsin. Folks, we'll see you all next week here at the Battleground Wisconsin.